I am Sergio Brodsky, and I'm a brand and foresight strategist. And I'm Jazz Giuliani, the editor of Marketing Mag. Welcome to Futurecast, the podcast where we talk with professional futurists, renowned academics, and high-profile business leaders from around the world. In this series, we think about the future so that we can meaningfully change the present. The time is now. Join us for better futures. This episode of Futurecast is proudly sponsored by Salesforce Datarama. To learn more about how teams are using Datarama to grow their marketing, visit marketingmag.com.au slash futurecast or click the link in our episode notes. Today we have with us Mark Johnson, who is an author and the co-founder and senior partner of Innersight. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. I know it's quite early there in the US, so we really do appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. We thought we'd get straight into things. So you recently co-authored and published a new book, Lead from the Future, How to Turn Visionary Thinking into Breakthrough Growth. And it's all about forward thinking and long-term planning. What inspired you to write this book and why now? I mean, I suppose you probably started this writing process quite a while ago, but what an amazing time to release a book all about leading from the future, you know, given the world circumstances. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, no, I I mean, uh, who could have predicted uh, (laughs) that uh, the book would be coming out in the middle of a situation where, uh, fortunately, we're dealing with such a crisis and the 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 paradox here is that the this kind of thinking becomes more important not less important when we when we're dealing with a with a crisis and yet our brains tend to just zero us on and on the immediate which of course needs to be addressed but then we need to be planning and continuing to to drive a north star for you know how we set things up but but anyway the the book was was really the foundation of uh, it, it's the basis of 20 years of doing this with with co-founding Innisight with Clay Christensen of the Harvard Business School. You know, we started with disruptive mm-hmm. innovation. It was all about, you know, Clay's work of the innovator's dilemma and how do organizations prevent getting disrupted, but then how do you think about how do you move how do you move forward to be able to create new and different growth? Well, anyway, as we worked through the challenges of innovation, we realized that what was really failing, especially breakthrough growth, breakthrough innovation initiatives was there wasn't a strategy, there wasn't a vision that was connecting to these new business model efforts, these new disruptive breakthrough efforts. And and the resource allocation process was breaking down in companies that leadership wasn't committing the resources or wasn't sustaining the resources for a long enough period of time um, and the, and we found there was no vision, there was no strategy for, you know, how to wrap your arms around these longer term growth initiatives. There was an agreement really in the leadership team for why they should go beyond doing what they what they do within the core business. So that's really the genesis of Lead from the Future is the ability to be able to sustain long term growth, especially top line growth. That if you weren't planning for the long term, in addition to the short term, and then committing with a with a view, a vision, and a strategy, then you wouldn't encapsulate the kind of breakthrough innovation efforts that allow organizations to continue to to drive their core business, but also to be able to thrive beyond that core. So that was really the foundation for for why I wrote Lead from the Future was recognizing if you didn't 
develop that vision and strategy, you weren't going to, you weren't going to succeed in breakthrough innovation. But there's something that I find a bit contradictory about that, Mark. Mm-hmm. And having been in, in a few different leadership programs and courses, what I keep hearing is that you live to you need to be there. You need to live the moment and be present. Mm-hmm. But on, in, in your book, you actually say that it's quite the opposite. And you actually alert readers about the perils of present forward thinking mm-hmm. and how people in business get stuck in the present. So h- how did you come up with a future back approach? And why is it so dangerous to be in the moment? Mm-hmm. Well, there's nothing, I mean, to your point, I mean, there, there's nothing wrong, Sergio, with being in the moment or, or thinking present forward. Um, it's just, it, it's a matter of different circumstances. So, you know, I, I talk quite a bit about this in that, you know, 90% of what we're going to do is going to be in the moment, uh, if you will, or present forward planning in the shorter term. Um, you know, it's it's the discipline of operating and executing the business, right? You know, there's and there's been all kinds of disciplines to do that better, whether that's Six Sigma, you know, the lean manufacturing. I mean, these were all sort of analogous of, of they're all analogs of each other in terms of being able to to create greater efficiency, uh, you know, to to be able to sustain off of what you've already built and move it forward, move it forward in time. And that absolutely is, is, is critically important. Um, you know, without, without a stable business that's continuing to, to move forward in time, you're not going to generate the, the growth and the financials at the core base to be able to, to be successful. But what, I'm espousing is an and statement, which is if that's 90, 80 to 90% of what you do in a healthy company, how do you carve out 10% to think about the five to 10 year horizon? How do you think about that future and bring it back to today and, and allow those insights to interpenetrate or to be part of how you think about what you're doing today as you're planning for that long range horizon? So yes, I agree you know, we have to be in the moment. You need to be, you know, thinking about the competition uh, along with, you know, certainly focused on what your customers are wanting you to do. And, you know, how do you do everything to continue to drive efficiencies and sustain? But I think the problem is we become so focused on just that, that we don't really seriously consider planting those seeds for the future, you know, more than just uh, I think a little bit going through the motion, at least in many corporations I work with where, yeah, we'll give these different sort of long-term projects, but they're not really taken seriously because they're not embedded in the vision. So that's how I would reconcile that, Sergio, is that you need both and 90%, 80 to 90% can be in the moment, but you need that 10% for future, future back. I couldn't agree with you more, Mark. I think that one of the things that happens in the industry right now is this problem of short-termism, and it's it's really coming to the forefront during this time because a lot of people are sort of dealing with spot fires, if you will, and just trying to figure out how to keep operating. And I guess it's something that has already been a problem in the in business culture for quite some time, even before that. So how does one break that cycle? And did you ever have to convince a client that being strategic about the future was a good thing? Or do you mostly work with companies that are already in that sort of foresight mindset? Well, that's a great question. On the first one, 
I think the importance of getting into the future, you know, how do you break the cycle? I, I, I think you have to begin to build awareness about the consequences of not developing the foresight and being being able to think about the future. And there's a few ways that that we've done it effectively with leaders and with companies. One is we often ask them, what's your growth gap? And they'll be like, what do you mean a growth gap? And I say, well, so look out honestly with your team five to 10 years and tell us what you really have as your aspiration for growth. You know, to do it on a financial basis. Do you want to drive uh, growth above the, you know, sort of the annual gross domestic product? Or do you want to, do you have some other calculus that you want to do to get some certain returns to shareholders, you know, that in the long term needs to start with the top line? So tell us what your top line growth needs to be. And then let's have a really honest discussion about when you look that far out, addressing a lot of factors over those, you know, five to 10 years. How much can your core business really deliver for that growth? And what you almost find invariably is there's a pretty quick recognition that there's going to be a growth gap that when you look that five to 10 year period out, there needs to be some businesses that are not currently in place today in order to consistently drive that kind of growth for that long term. So one is to begin to think about what's going to be needed in order to, for that long-term drive the growth. The other is just to recognize that if you can share uh, some examples of looking to the future and talking about faint signals and scenarios and basic trends, tying them to the future of the consumer or the customer, and what's going to be important for them. We often find that people, and you know, if you're able to begin a discussion about that, there's usually an aha moment that says, you know, we hadn't really thought that far out and with that sort of comprehensive, a uh, sort of a future environment view. But now that we've done that, we've all of a sudden have an insight that we were missing before. In other words, we often call that the vision paradox, which is you don't envision the future until, you know, and feel that it's important until you actually do it. And then you realize that you've missed something because you haven't done it before. So that's sort of the paradox is mm -hmm. most people don't feel the need to vision until they actually do it and realize how powerful the insights are. I mean, a quick example of this is in the automotive industry in the United States. We worked with a car manufacturer and their senior leadership team, and they had a view about battery technology and electric vehicles that they would basically be, you know, following what was happening based on uh, regulation um, and what was happening just in terms of the competition and didn't see themselves as having a need to be pioneers or out in front. Well, long story short mm -hmm. there is they did the work of, of looking into the future and building a foresight and the implications of what was happening just around the world. They completely changed their strategic view about the investment in batteries and electric vehicles. Um, and it really changed things in a in their path in a completely different way that they had to really start the effort now, not just on technology development, but on market road mapping. So anyway, I think those are probably two big ones that are important is to be able to to find that growth gap and to be able to spend time in the future and maybe some experimental way to show to show leadership teams that there's really a lot to be taken in. 
That's that's really interesting what you said about having this motivation beyond the need, you know, having this eagerness to work with the future. And, uh, you know, since you already mentioned Clay Christensen's name, why not, you know, have a, have a little discussion about him as well and how he was uh, influential in the way that you have generated the, the future back approach and how you 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 founded InnoSight as well, and in terms of thinking about business strategy strategy in the future, is disruptive innovation something that has to an extent seeded the idea of future back? Oh, absolutely, Sergio. Well, you know, first just just as a little bit of background with Clay Christensen, you know, as I mentioned, we co-founded. Uh, InnoSight, which was 20 years ago in January of, of 2000. So it's been a little over 20 years, which has been a sort of a, well, not sort of, it has been a bittersweet year. You know, this is mm. 20 years of InnoSight, a, a milestone. It's also a sad time in that Clay passed away in January of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's been a lot of time for reflection about his life and about his goodness and you know, how much he's done for for me and so many other people he's touched around the world. Um, you know, I had him, he was a friend. Um, he was not just a business colleague, but a friend and influenced my life personally as much as professionally. And, you know, as I said, it started with his, it professionally with his work on disruptive innovation. You know, it was his first started being called disruptive technology until we realized it was really the business model that was in the disruption so that's when we talked about it as disruptive innovation. And that, in fact, was a big piece of what started the idea of Future Back and, and Lead from the Future as a book was, as you looked at the disruption of companies being more about how they couldn't allocate resources towards the business model, which is disrupting them. You know, the classic example was how all of the, many computer manufacturers who are making these large computers, mini computers for corporations couldn't prioritize these simple personal computers compared to the mini computer technology. But it was because the business model of Apple and Compaq at the time was so different than a Hewlett Packard or a digital equipment corporation or a Prime or a Wang or Nixdorf's uh, business model that the fact that they couldn't prioritize that made this as much a leadership problem, a resource allocation problem, as it was an innovation problem. And it and it really came to roost in this challenge of they were literally being disrupted by the business model of these new entrants. And so, and and then as you saw companies try to make their way to understand what a business model is and how to innovate it. Um, they were just having so much trouble and they too continue to this day. And, and that's where we started to recognize that if you didn't figure out a horizon of time that could wrap around the time it takes to incubate and scale a business model, then it really wasn't going to fit in the overall planning to try to develop a business model in the first place. Because as, as you all probably know, you know, when you, when you try to, especially organically, you know, without acquisition, try to develop some new and different business business model, you're going to take two or three years of incubation, right, to be able to test and learn and develop it. And then you're going to take another good two to three years 
to scale it if you want to do it in a way that really manages the risk of developing you know this big breakthrough growth effort so there you go you know between incubation and scale you could easily be at five six seven years before it's really driving revenues that are significant enough to be impactful for a for a large corporation so if you're looking that far you you know why why not start from the end exactly why not start from the Mm. end why not encapsulate that as how that's a part of the overall view because if you don't have that view then it can never seem that important or it just seems like well that's too far away that's that's not going to do what we need to do and so therefore these things get deprioritized and unfortunately they get deprioritized by not anybody saying no i hate this i don't want to do it they get deprioritized really by the subtlety of it by just benign neglect or just saying well we've got too many things going on in the core uh, we we need to get more resources over here and so the the effort to really do something for the long term either gets starved of resources slowly or you know leadership changes its mind and just says why you know let's just pull the plug on it so that's that's a that's basically how this whole thing with Innocite and with Clay Christensen really started was, you know, lots and lots of desire to, to help companies succeed in disruptive innovation. But, and then that includes being able to change the business model and lots and lots of failure to actually see it all the way through, no matter how good the idea is, which made us realize that it wasn't really an innovation and innovation team problem. It really became more of a, vision and leadership problem that they're not as involved as they should be in the process of innovation through their effort to develop a proper vision and you know be able to stay behind that vision to support the innovation projects that will help realize that vision for the first time ever salesforce datarama has conducted a research study in seven countries across asia and anz Learn about the top challenges marketers face and how they are utilizing data to drive growth in our survey of over 1,000 top marketing leaders. Download it now from marketingmag.com.au slash futurecast, or you can find a link in our episode notes. Well, that's, that's, that's a fascinating story, and I can remember f- with certainty that my f- the first business, business book that I've ever bought was The Innovator's Dilemma. Mm. So there you go. There you go. And, That's uh, wonderful. <laughs> and, I, and possibly the last one that I've bought was How to Lead from the Future. Oh. So <laughs> full, full circle today. And since, since we're talking about big visions and moving, changing a little bit the tech from profit to planet, I would say that the biggest vision that we have right now is possibly the, the, the 17 Sustainable Development Goals from the UN. Mm-hmm. So the 17 Mm-hmm. SDGs, yep. and th- they are an interesting example of uh, what future back could actually be, and a future back that means something to every single individual in this planet. Do, do you think o- about it this way, or do you see the SDGs in a different way? And if you had to maybe improve something around those 17 goals for the future of humanity, would you would, would you change it in any way? Well, I think as a as a set of goals, I mean, I think they're wonderful. I mean, I think they're critically important. And as you can see, I think we just need more of, of this kind of thinking and this kind of 
planning this kind of awareness, you know, these kinds of initiatives, right? I mean, all of that is just critically important. I mean, you know, you you see what's happening right now. I mean, at least in the United States, right? We've we have all these fires out in the West, uh, in mm-hmm. California, yeah. and all these Midwestern states. The hurricanes have been more uh, frequent and relentless this year than ever than ever before. And the science has become just absolutely, you know, what a 99% all aligned as to, you know, that global warming in the place is in, is happening and it's and it's done by man, uh, by mankind. So that's that's a that's a reality. But yet, people, organizations, still live in the here and now, in the moment, in the short term, and and they can't stay. How do you plan for that? to get to a certain level of, say, carbon emissions in a certain place. And by the way, as you know, I wrote some of this on the book because it's just so mm-hmm. clear of what's our problem is that we as individuals, as human beings, and then as organizations just remain so short-sighted that we still haven't really moved forward to take a, a, any kind of unified systemic you know, kind of global initiative to to really try to reverse the tide of what's happening. And um, I'm sorry, Sergio, you were going to jump in on something else? No, 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 no. No, every, everything makes sense. But it's just you mentioned the word planning a few times. Yes. Is, is it a, a matter of planning or is more about commitment? Because it seems like the plan is there and it's been laid out quite clearly with several nations subscribing to it mm-hmm. and developing their own plans. But when it comes to commitment and delivering on that vision, delivering on those goals, very little has been achieved. I mean, yeah. There's been, you know, certainly a lot has been achieved, but not enough, not nearly enough of what we need. No, no, for sure. Well, I mean, and you you would know those initiatives better to me and to the extent of is the planning future back one, you know, is it truly future back to say, you know, this is this is what we envision the future, not just in the environment, but but in terms of what actually gets achieved. Right. So have we have we really laid out where things exactly look around the world. And again, the, I guess the hard part about this, to your, to your point, Sergio, about commitment, is getting that commitment. And it, and it would be, you know, at least within an established organization, is how strong is the vision um, and how aligned and committed are, are people to that vision? And then how well is that vision broken down into chunks that can be achievable by converting that vision into choices that you can make today and over the next couple of years vis-a-vis initiatives that get funded, get staffed, and get laid out in their own way to move towards that intended vision. And to be honest, I don't, I, I, I'm aware of those UN initiatives. I'm not aware enough of the details of how that planning was done and did it convert into some committed initiatives over the next couple of years? Because as much as a lot of these things are over the next 20 years, the way that we talk about Futureback from a planning point of view is you have to not just think about that vision, but you've got to create the milestone plan in reverse. And you have to develop initiatives that are spend a little to learn a lot, that there's a way that you're not going to be overcome by something that's too ambitious and too expensive to get started. So I guess that would be my question is, do they have them broken down enough into some things today that could be pilots 
pilot projects, you know, testing and learning mm. in ways, because I think if it's too ambitious um, to start, then you're just going to get difficulty. Anybody saying, how do we move this forward? It's a little bit, we call the pull on the string theory is once you, yeah. once you have that vision, then how you walk it back is you got to pull in just different ways to just get it started, but, but don't make it too overly ambitious. Otherwise there's, it's going to get mired in, people deciding how we're going to get the resources to do it. Hmm. I think that people very much get overwhelmed by, by this issue and it's a very large topic and obviously something that needs urgent action. But I think, Mark, the point you make about alignment and, um, and people sharing the same strong vision is really important. Well, and I also think I was – can I just say, Jazz, on that too is, you know, I think it's important we – we figure out a way, and I know it's hard because these these are such big topics, and they they're systemic challenges, you know, that require multi-nation efforts. But mm. I think there has to be ability to show demonstration. Um, there has to be some way to show win early wins, right? Like any change management process needs to show early wins. Uh, you, you know, even if they're small little things where multiple countries got together. And they were able to make a difference in um, carbon levels. And, and I'm sure there are many examples of those, actually, but begin to showcase those and try to, you know, show that this this is workable. And the more that we can showcase those, I think the more the, the intended plans can be supported. But again, I, I think the richness of the vision, you know, not just a vision statement, and then a clear milestone path developed in reverse order that can be, I guess, owned by United Nations, and then initiatives by which could be parsed in different ways to different countries to achieve and to show progress, even if they're small steps, I think is critically important to bringing the vision alive and to giving the alignment and commitment and and sponsorship that it needs to be real. Futurecast is the Marketing Mag podcast series brought to you by Content Brains and presented by Marketing Mag. Futurecast is produced by Joanne Davies, head of Content Brains and publisher of Marketing Mag, and Jazz Giuliani, editor of Content Brains and Marketing Mag. Our executive producer is Sergio Brodsky with original music and audio production by Sam Boone. If you want further details on our podcast or our guests, please visit the episode notes in this podcast. Remember to subscribe to Futurecast so you never miss an episode.